Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode number 209 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. Friday, September 10th, 2021, I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, it's, it's now a monthly podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I think we talked, when we talk a big game about things like, we're going to broadcast every week, or the New York Mets are in first place, that is like a Sports Illustrated cover jinx every time. Steve, how you feeling? I, I, I mean, I, I, I think I'm not even going to address the Mets. I, I, I think you and I both were were our usual wildly optimistic selves in figuring out how much time we would have in the first couple of weeks of the semester to sit down and record a podcast. Yeah, this has been tough. I mean, there's uh, I'm teaching two large classes at the at the time. You and I both are teaching one fall one L's, which I know we said this in past years on the show, but I, it's so true. I'm going to say it again. It's the greatest thing in the world teaching brand new one L's. It's so much fun from a teaching perspective. Um, office hours, well attended, energetic, uh, engaged. I'm not saying our upper level students aren't enthused learners of the law, but I think but they, they don't are. show it sometimes. Well, they, <laughs> they distribute their energies in multiple directions. How about that? I have no, I mean, going. I mean, there really is. There's nothing quite like the the enthusiasm and the bright-eyed, bushy-tailedness of first semester one Ls, um, which you know is is I think ninety eight percent a good thing and two percent a tiring thing. It is, yes. It's, these things are, as as any parent knows, these things are closely related. Well, uh, and, and 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 since I have a small group, you know, we're coming up on our first writing assignment, so that will oh, also yeah. soon entail a uh, a large amount of in semester graded work for me. I will like be walking past you, kind of enjoying sort of ah, <laughs> uh, you know, misery does not love company kind of way until finals. And then, I was gonna say until you get your hundred and ten exams, and I've got thirty six. Yeah, it's gonna be a real kick in the pants. You know what's really fun? We've been doing this show long enough now to where we get students who are brand new students who were fans of the show or listeners of the show. <laughs> I shouldn't assume fans. But they were in middle school. Show. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, today is obviously the day before the 20th anniversary of 9/11. Um, we're going to focus there today. We're yeah. going to we're going to take this occasion to mostly spend our time walking through the the major issues of national security law that experienced big change during this period, and and just sort of share in an unplanned, typical of this podcast sort of way our off-the-cuff thoughts on on what was big, what wasn't big, what changed, what lasted, what didn't, what were the, what were the things that people uh, 20, 20 years and two days ago would be really shocked about to find today. And we'll probably hit all the, the, the classics. When I think classic post-9-11 counterterrorism-focused national security law, Steve, I think detention, military commissions, uh, lethal force, uh, UN charter, you said bound questions, surveillance, interrogation. Those are the sort of the the organizing chunks. I'm sure I'm missing a few things. Immigration fits in there, uh, DHS type issues. But uh, what do you think? Is that about where the ground we want to cover? Yeah, maybe just some personal reflections on you know where we were 20 years ago tomorrow. I mean, yeah, we should do that. I mean, I know we've done that on past 9/11 anniversaries on the show, but uh, something about 20. Yeah, 20s 20 is a big round number, and uh, two two full decades from that morning. Uh, let's start there. And just by way of preview, then when we get past all that we have a you've you've been a 
busy guy. You have some some various uh, legal activities you're involved in and scholarly activities that are very much worth some remarks. And so we'll check I, I'm in. glad you said they're legal activities because, you know, if they were illegal, illegal activities, that could be a separate well, I wouldn't have you, as your lawyer, I wouldn't have you check in on your illegal activities here. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so we'll, we'll touch base with what what is Stephen doing and uh, by implication, like, what am I doing? Not much. Um, oh, no, you, you, you just can't talk about all the things you're doing. Well, this is true. <laughs> this is true. Um, and then we'll uh, we'll pivot to frivolity. We got to check in with Major League Baseball, but the NFL is Do off we? to a hot start. Yeah. Um, and then uh, hey, the, I, the Giants are in first place. The uh, This is exciting. This is exciting uh, for you. I don't think it's going to last, but we'll get to that. And then we'll I'll talk about a little bit about the Harlem book by uh, Yes. It, uh, the Harlem book, which you had already read, and I, I caught up to it on your recommendation. I loved it. Um, but first, let's let's go back to 20 years ago. Um, where were you that morning, Steve? I was in Guido Calabresi's torts class. It was <laughs> it was it was the second. So it was the second week of law school. But um, you know, Judge Calabresi um, didn't teach the first week, so it was actually literally our second day of torts. Um, and class started at class went from 8:45 to 10. So. There you go. Um, we were in class. Um, I, you know, I, I don't recall. I don't think Wi-Fi was that was that pervasive at that point. I think people had like wired internet connections, and the room we were in didn't have a lot of plugs. So I don't know that a lot of us were on the internet. Um, I certainly wasn't, because the first we knew anything was amiss, someone came running into the classroom um, to tell judge to to sort of ask Judge Calabresi if they could speak to him outside. Listen, it's the second day of class. We have, we're, we have, we're taking class with the sitting Second Circuit judge. We don't realize that this doesn't happen yeah. every day. Um, and so Guido goes out into the hallway and comes back in and says, apparently two planes have struck the World Trade Center. Um, and he says, if anyone needs to leave, I totally understand. Um, and we're all like, uh, what? Um, and then he keeps teaching, <laughs> which I thought was, I mean, you know, I, there are some interesting pedagogical issues there. But I just, I, the moment is seared in my memory of someone, I never, I've never figured out who it was running into the classroom, Guido going out into the hall, Guido coming back in and Guido telling us what happened. I was, uh, so I was a few ahead of you, years ahead of you on the law school track. So I was in practice at the time at Davis Polk in Wardwell in Midtown Manhattan, 40, 45th and, and Lex basically. So above the, the Grand Central Complex. And uh, I had, I had, Coming on the uh, the four or the five that morning, I'd gotten my bagel. I was at my desk. I was checking my hardwired to my desktop email, and uh, and then those are the days, right, when you actually couldn't check email on the on the, on your on your commute. I had a uh, so I had what did I have? I had a BlackBerry at that like time. a Palm Pilot. No, I had I had I had gone through my Palm Pilot. I had a firm issued BlackBerry, and it seemed like magic that you had uh-huh. the keyboard yep. there. It was awesome. Yep. Yep. Um, but so somebody screamed out in the hallway and went running down the hallway. And again, you know, maybe as a measure of like what you're used to in that environment. Actually, Davis Polk was not a scream kind of place. Nonetheless, it didn't seem necessarily a, a sign of anything having to do with the larger outside world that someone might have, you know, screamed and run. I just thought, well, that something something's gone terribly wrong in a case or something. I totally had no idea of what it could signify. But then almost immediately I started getting calls and emails, uh, people checking in asking, if, you know, basically saying like, am I at my desk? Am I okay? Um, and, uh, you know, it wasn't that long. So we're there at the firm most of the morning. It wasn't that long before colleagues 
uh, including people covered in dust and, and debris, were making their way back to Midtown and, and coming into the office for want of a better idea about where they were going. And then by afternoon, most people had uh, gone to, I think it was the, oh, I forget which building, maybe Citibank, but there was a big line to go donate. So like all of Midtown had sort of congregated to form a line to at a Red Cross blood donation station and the line never moved. Until finally, the volunteers came out and said, there's, you know, basically the message was people made it or they didn't. There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of need for blood. And, uh, you know, went home. I, at the time, lived on uh, 3rd between 71st and 72nd. Real tall building. I got up to the roof, which I'd never accessed before, but I got up on the roof and just started taking pictures of the of the tower of smoke and debris that was arcing out of uh, down at the bat the battery end of the island and spilling out and, and it it diffused the cloud did it diffused and you could see it raining down over Brooklyn and disseminating down over Brooklyn the smell was uh, yeah very sharp electrical type of a metallic electrical smell um, yeah it was pretty bonkers I mean my wife was flying that morning so that was scary although by the time I was able to process the danger that entailed she had already been diverted to uh, I mean, she was on a, a, a long haul flight, so it was a little scary in retrospect. She was on the ground by the time I realized that I should be scared. And, you know, that was, uh, yeah, that was hard to forget those moments there. But emotionally most impactful as the toll on the firefighters began and, and the toll yeah. on yeah. Uh, people who'd lost loved ones who started putting up the have you seen type signs yep. everywhere. Yep. At, like, at really, the armory, at the armory, right? The armory was the central, uh, the, the central sort of focus. I mean, point. it was almost like a work of art. The way it, yeah. it, was, it was nothing like, and they were showing up everywhere else. Um, the fi- the fire station that was in our neighborhood, this Yorkville fire station, was, um, you know, they lost their crew, right. and uh, we were in church. So the next, the following Sunday morning, so five days later, uh, we were in church and. So there was this moment where the uh, in in a in a Christian service where the um, the host uh, for communion is is brought forward up the aisle, and the surviving firefighters from that uh, station, they were there, and we didn't know they came walking up the aisle. Anyways, it was it was really powerful. Yeah, I mean there were there were moments like that all over me. I I remember. You know, I was in New Haven, right? I wasn't in New York, but my family was. And and Bobby, I remember that Thursday night was my dad's birthday, um, right? This was Tuesday morning. And, you know, we had a whole long thing about whether we should, you know, celebrate my dad's birthday, whether like I should try to come into the city. The city was basically yeah. shut down. And I remember like it was really important to me to come home for my dad's birthday. Oh, yeah. And, and I remember driving. I, I drove down from New Haven. I drove with my my little sister, who was a sophomore um, um, at Yale, and you know, you and I—I I mean, people—people people who live in the Northeast have done that drive thousands of times, right? I ninety-five down the Connecticut Turnpike, yeah, right. Um, the you know the Bruckner, the Cross Bronx, like the whole shebang. Um, and I will never forget how eerily empty the roads Ooh, were, yeah, right, like. You know, I mean, we set a land speed record from New Haven to New York because there was literally no one on the roads. It was, and it was daylight. Like it wasn't like this yeah, weird yeah. middle How of the night. Could that thing. Be? How, where is everybody? Right. It was just like, it was just it, the surreality of it. Just, you know, 
I mean, I'm, I'm a native New Yorker. I went to elementary school, you know, under the, sh- the shade of the World Trade Center. I mean, my, my element, you know, there was debris that fell into the playground in my elementary school. Um, oh, it was just the, the yeah. I mean, I think people people of our age and, you know, to sort of to, to reasonable sides of us, like just the the shock to the, the the complete shock to the the sort of the nervous system that, that that it was. Even for those, I mean, I had a college classmate who was in the North Tower who died, right? I mean, I think we all know people at least who knew people who died. Yeah, you could um, not. Right. But I mean, it's just it was such a I think it's hard for folks who weren't old enough at that moment in time to understand just how profoundly um, I don't know what the I don't even know what the word is mesmerizing like and not in a good way just like profoundly discombobulating how how, yeah. how nothing every everything was frozen yep. nothing was untouched by this yeah um, and and it's certainly true as as I'm sure maybe even many listeners are thinking like hey you know that's a peculiarly American feeling of you think you're safe and then you're not but the, a lot of people in the world experience this sort of uh, variations of, of violence all the time. Um, but I, I think that's kind of the point that uh, yep. people in the United States um, don't experience uh, targeted, intentional, organized mass violence on this scale, period. I mean, obviously, you have to go back a long ways to find comparable, you know, Pearl Harbor type experience on in the territorial, you know, continental United States. Um, and so it does have an extreme extraordinary from the policy perspective, of course, the effect of it all and, and what comes out soon afterwards as people start to understand like, well, who, who done it and, and why um, it radically changes the, not just the realm or the art of the possible from a domestic political and international diplomatic perspective in terms of what the U S government could do, but it's more accurate to say the, uh, the facts of the mandatory, the imperatives this created, uh, for for some form of action, and then the question becomes what? What is the the right action? Not from our perspective in uh, sitting here in 2021, but rather from the perspective of those working in the the fog of uncertainty at the moment. Um, and and of course that in turn, the way those questions got answered, give rise to more than a generation's worth of incredibly important and complicated legal questions that touch on every area area of law and practice. Uh, it certainly has defined uh, both your career and mine, uh, basically created the conditions for our careers. Although I, I think in your case, you would have been just fine without the national security topics. I'm pretty sure I would, I, would, I don't know what I'd be doing, but um, you, you, I mean, playing you, in an 80s cover band with some, you know. No, no, no. Listen, I, I don't, you, you are, you are as usual too dismissive. I, I think, I mean, listen, there was important work to be done in that field. Um, I think it would have just been a little harder for you to get that work noticed because people weren't paying attention to it. I, yeah, I, you know, there's a, there's a lot of us who work in this area who, it, unless you had some other area you were going to work in as a professor, there just wasn't a need for, there weren't faculty spots for this sort of right. thing. And the number of courses and the types of courses you can now take are just radically different from what was on offer in the days where, unless you were lucky enough to be with Scott Silliman at Duke or, or uh, you know, Bob Turner and John Norton Moore at UVA, there were relatively few spots in, you know, in the 90s and earlier that kind of consciously developed the national security law category mindset. Although I, I'm not naming lots and lots of other people individually who were out there also doing no, no, work. No, no, no. But I mean, but so, so it's interesting, right? Because this might be a good segue because like I went to law school thinking that I wanted to work on international criminal justice. Um, right. The, the Rome statute is signed yeah. in 2000. Right. Like that's 
you know, ICTY, ICTR, right like, right? like the sort of how how legal systems deal with violent crises, right? How legal systems deal with emergencies. Right. Um, and so in retrospect, right, the pivot for me was entirely obvious, um, even though it didn't feel like it at the time. But, you know, I, I don't I, I don't think it would be useful for us to sort of tell the history of the last 20 years. I think it might just be useful to sort yeah, of. Well, indeed. Um, but I, I guess so in thinking about like how we got here from there, and I mean the we in both the you and I sense and in the sort of legal system sense, I, I guess what I'm struck by the most sitting here on the 20th anniversary of, of 9-11 is just how little I feel like things have changed since the 15th anniversary and the 10th anniversary. Like there was so much movement in our field those first five, 10 years. And I feel oh, yeah. like there's been so much less movement over the last 10. Yeah, maybe we could you know, kind of periodize things within the, the, bearing in mind that we're talking about all those different, yeah. not identical topics I mentioned earlier. Uh, I think maybe one way to split it up and, and periodize it is to say that there's the initial, it's almost the throw spaghetti on a wall phase of the Bush administration, uh, starting down various pathways that were kind of conceived and, and drafted in haste in the September, October into November period. And sort of hallmarks of that, with the benefit of hindsight, we know, for example, certain certain initiatives that NSA undertook that would to this day still be points of great debate and controversy that you and I talk about on this show all the time, yep. having to do with uh, the scope of surveillance powers in a rapidly digitizing, more in, uh, cyber-centric world. So some of that stuff gets set in motion, but that's all off the radar screen as far as the public knows. What's visible is certainly the, the decision to embrace an armed conflict model, an armed conflict framing for the, not, I don't mean just the broad rhetoric of uh, war on terror. I mean specifically saying that the United States is in a state of legalized or legal armed conflict with Al Qaeda and those harboring Al Qaeda. And then that gets implemented and put into uh, statutory form with the AUMF, but it gets implemented in practice in Afghanistan most visibly. And as we've been talking about on the show, that that has run its course there. But that's not ever been coextensive with the scope of the claim that each administration from that first moment and ever since has been making, that the United States and Al-Qaeda are in a global armed conflict, that the law of armed conflict applies, that there are all sorts of policy and other legal constraints that modulate where and how the tools of armed conflict can and are used. But the baseline principle that these are... Uh, combatants, that they can be targeted with lethal force as a first resort if they're not out of combat, that they can be detained for the duration of hostilities. Those claims are first initially made. Uh, and also the military commissions would be available in the event of, of crime charges as an option. Those That sort of triple whammy of, of novel moves um, gets made then. And it's still with us. But what's fascinating is that the formal claims have never been surrendered. But in practice, it's different ones have been walked back in certain ways. So look at detention. Uh, detention outside of areas of active combat operations as the place where you capture somebody and where you're still holding them, that hasn't been a thing for the United States going back to what, 2006? Mm -hmm. Except for the legacy cases, which are the tiniest, tiny, tiny rump of the overall number of military detentions exercised by the United States when you actually account for what we did in Iraq in Afghanistan and elsewhere, but mainly those two places, uh, Gitmo is just this, this extraordinarily visible 
but tiny percentage of those cases. And yet, even though we've abandoned it everywhere else, we've we've held out held on in this death grip to the to the Gitmo detainee mechanism for those who were there then. And we and you know, so we still have a few dozen. Um, military commissions uh, have also likewise uh, in, in many ways uh, had a more robust life, although nobody knew gets brought into that system beyond that same sort of period. Um, the the almost, I guess you, I wouldn't say almost, the farcical attempts to sort of bring any of these cases, uh, to bring the 9-11 case, sorry, any of those defendants to trial, which is, you know, happening as we speak, once again, more more preliminary hearings. That's, that seems to go nowhere. It's sort of this like perpetual motion machine. Um, the use of lethal force continues. Um, I don't think that the end of our ground combat presence in Afghanistan means that they're not going to conduct strikes. They've said repeatedly that at, t- at appropriate times, they'll still use lethal force over the horizon, as it may be. Uh, so in some ways, the uh, the pace of activity has has greatly narrowed over time, Steve. But but the legal frameworks all seem to be sitting kind of where they started, albeit with lots of modifications along the way. And hence, all the controversies still there. And you can't say any of it's really been resolved. At least it didn't feel like it's been resolved. So so I guess I would, if you would indulge me, what I think is a friendly amendment. Sure. Um, I think... I mean, I, and I'm going to start with the tension and try to expand it out so that we can actually try to get, you know, because I think the surveillance part of this conversation also it, it implicates the same story. I think the legal framework as of 2000 and I don't know, certainly as of certainly from 2012 onwards, I think the legal framework has been remarkably static for the last, right, nine years. Um Right, and and I think that 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 extends into the surveillance context as well. I mean, I think yep, even the sure. right. I mean, I think the right. I mean, the you know, yes, there's the USA Freedom Act, but real realistically, um, right. I really think it's you know, 2008 is the last enormously significant structural change to to surveillance authorities. Um, I guess it's you know, it, it feels Bobby right like there's. There's the sort of the three periods, right? There's like the early period of like lots of aggressive movement by the government, some modest pushback by the courts, and a lot of stuff we don't know. There's the middle period, which is when our field was at its, I think, most robust, right? When it seems like every day brought a huge new development, a huge new court case, a huge new statute, um, policy shifts, um, right? Detention briefs, um, right? Meaningful legislation. And then there's been like the quiet period, where, as you say, right, there are still people very much affected by it, but like the movement in the law has really waned out. And and I honestly feel like that that model applies equally to surveillance, just the the sort of the inflection points are at slightly different places yeah, along the timeline. I think it's right. I think it's right. I think that uh, the the country's attention, sort of both writ large. And the way that at least mass market media coverage focuses on stuff and there, therefore drives the conversation also has shifted towards Russia, China, disinformation, internal divisions. Uh, basic rule of law. Basic rule of law stuff. I mean, the combination of you know, you've got your, your Trump issues, you've got your, your cyber issues, you've got the rise of China, you've got Russia with all its activities, uh, both in kinetic and cyberspace, all these things are in fact 
more pressing on a day-to-day basis for most people in the United States or certainly are perceived to be so. And, and so the attention goes elsewhere and therefore the pressure to tweak, modify, or alter the, the way that things had evolved over that initial 12-year period just isn't there. I mean, there obviously are still people who follow this stuff really closely and, and, and are you know, very focused on it, but they're not, they're not joined by everybody else the way it used to be. So that probably stays that way until there's some similar shock to the system that either pulls the U.S. government into some fresh or seemingly fresh uh, set of high drama activities, uh, or there's some revelation of something that's already going on that people don't know about it that's a shock to the system. Frankly, I think that everything that is going on that is interesting surely is basically out there at this point. I I, I for one, at least think that it's very unlikely that there's some expose that, oh, it turns out the United States is, you know, waterboarding prisoners or doing something that would be a huge headline. I think everything's kind of out there now. Uh, what, so that leads to an interesting question, like what's really different about the world of the 2020s versus, you know, going into 9-11? Um, I think in many ways that for all the secrecy that the government uh, insists upon in this, the problems that sometimes are associated with that, I think on the whole, the government is not winning the larger tug of war over trying to keep its national security classified activities fully in the classified realm. It, it seems like one of the one of the most striking things about the pivot points in this evolution we're talking about is how often it's, well, there there is a leak and it got published or something came out. I mean, most of these stories, most of the changes come after a leak reveals to the public something that's going on and that that catalyzes uh, all sorts of political pressures, policy pressures. It arms other institutions outside the executive branch to start pressuring the executive branch. And most of the change seems to follow from that sort of stuff. I mean, that might, I wonder if that's almost true across every dimension of what goes on with post 9-11 legal policy evolution. Yeah, I guess, you know, I, I, I have, I think, not surprisingly, a slightly more cynical take um, right. Which is just that, like, I, I, part of this maybe is because I've been reading too much of Spencer Ackerman's book. Um, right. But I, I just, you know, I think we've been beaten down a little bit. Um, right. That, that it's not just this sort of, you know, the sort of the shifting public focus and public interest, but that we've become inured to things that 20 years ago, we would have been actually much more, um, fired up about, right. That, that, you know, the, and part of that Bobby, I think is because there's so much other stuff to be fired up about. Right. You can, right. you have to, you can only divide your uh, anger or, or enthusiasms right. of policy in so many, so many pieces. But also, I, mean, I think, I think repetition, you know, the extent to which these debates have been happening without producing meaningful change has also created, you know, fatigue. I mean, I think, you know, Linda For Greenhouse, sure. Linda Greenhouse wrote, I think a very important column, gosh, I want to say back in 2013, right. Called Guantanamo fatigue, um, which, which, you know, I think gets at the phenomenon of, you know, people just stop having the ability to care about issues where when they first were issues were divisive, but just like keep lingering and lingering and lingering and nothing happens. And it's just like, you know. So I think that's right. And so maybe another friendly amendment. I think that if, if we're trying to kind of quantify and diagnose why there's just not as much sort of national dialogue in, in sense of like there probably needs to be a change, part of it surely is fatigue. But I think that I think that the fatigue is specifically relevant for communities that all things being equal, if they had nothing else to worry about and were being presented with something for the first time, would in fact look at the circumstance and say, as a matter of policy uh, or, or whatever other metric, 
this is something I don't like and don't want to change. And, and the fatigue reduces the, reduces the chance of that. But there's also a lot of stuff that comes out and gets looked at. And a lot of people who on inspection are not bothered or, or in other words, approve of what they're seeing. And so you have that as well, that at a certain point, the stuff comes out and there's an awkward decentralized process of coming to grips with what is this program? What does it entail? What are the pros and cons? And over time, some people get tired of fighting. They want to change, but they get tired of fighting because it doesn't change. And other people over time decide this shouldn't change. This is tolerable. This is okay. And, uh, you know, whether that's okay, whether, of course, it's not surprising there's a division of opinion. On some issues, maybe that seems more weird than on others, but I think it's both of those things. And in the fact that you get presidents of both parties using these tools removes the otherwise dominant mode of American policy thinking, which is just tell me what my team votes for is or votes against, and I'll tell you if I'm mad or not. Um, well, if everybody's doing it, it, it's at a certain point, it seems like, ah, all right, well, I, I can't, I can't use that as the proxy to decide where I'm angry. I think that's right. And, and I guess, let me say by all of that, that like, to me, that's one of the most important reasons why I like that we do this podcast. Um, right. And I, I don't mean that because it's like, it's nice to see your face at least once a week. Um, <laughs> Right, as opposed to in the before times when I could see your face every day, um, right. right? But just also that, like, I, once a week, that might be aspirational. Um, <laughs> but just like, I mean, I, I also think that, like, there is really important, um, you know, just keeping up public conversation about topics that have receded from public interest. Like, yes, we try to sort of focus on hot topics and recent developments and things that are in the news. But I also think, like, just reminding people you know, there's still 39 guys at Guantanamo, right? That, you know, there's this massively important on banc DC circuit argument coming up on September 30th, right? Like there are, you know, these are to such a large degree legacy issues, Bobby, but to describe them as legacy issues doesn't mean that they are only a matter of history, um, right? right. They're legacy issues only in the sense that they are not shaping current policy choices by the relevant decision makers. I get right that there's never a time when we should stop asking hard questions about how the government exercises its most coercive powers, the powers of lethal force, the powers of deprivation of liberty, the, the powers of criminal punishment, the powers of intrusive surveillance, all, all those things. Of course, we think those are great issues. We want to study them no matter what, but the public uh, in a healthy rule of law society, there is never a lack of attention to those things. Um, and if they're being exercised in ways that are that are complex and, and everyone would, would probably need to agree or at least debatable, well, then we should be asking the hard questions. And when the rest of the rest of the folks are, are focused on other issues because other things matter, too, that's great. It's it's our job since we're not really expert on anything else. We will stay on this topic. And for those who can stand the frivolity, you can always come here every week and we'll still be talking about it. Um you know, one thing kind of to zero in on something a bit more doctrinal, on my list of topic areas, I, I made a mention of the UN Charter and USAD Bellum. I think it's very interesting to track one of the threads of development has to do with the unable and willing doctrine. This idea that um, states under the UN Charter, states are not to engage in the use of force uh, in violation of Article 2.4 of the Charter, absent 
uh, armed attack where you're responding in self-defense or, or pursuant to a Chapter 7 authorization promulgated by the Security Council. Um, but we've seen development of this idea first really aired in relation to how the United States was going after uh, al-Qaeda members with, with airstrikes, whether by drone or otherwise airstrikes. Um, maybe sometimes in Pakistan, although often there was consent, but, but increasingly often over time, maybe it seemed like there wasn't consent. Uh, and then, and then in Yemen as well, in areas of the country where the writ such as it was of the central government didn't run. And there was consent perhaps more often in Yemen than Pakistan. But in any event, you, you began to hear these arguments being articulated that another way to think about where force could be used in international affairs, uh, is where you're going into the territory of a country that is not itself responsible, directly responsible for attacking you, but within its territory is someone who, who you're claiming has engaged in an armed attack on you. And the, the territorial government is unwilling or unable to do something effective to prevent further attacks. So the idea that the United States was occasionally articulating was that if, if the host government's unwilling or unable, then it either one possible version of this is the host government or the territorial government has in effect assumed state responsibility for what's going on there. Or if that seems too harsh a claim to make, others would say that it's in effect a waiver of their objection because they're failing to control their territory. Either way, the United States uh, used this as a predicate, at least sometimes for using force in some locations where it wasn't obvious they had consent. And uh, that was very controversial and it remains so, but the Islamic State's rise and the sort of the hot period of the Islamic State's uh, territorial gains in Iraq and Syria uh, seemed to move the needle pretty far for some entities. There was a UN General Secretary statement at one point that sounded approving of unwilling and able, which you never would have seen five years before. Uh, other states besides the United States explaining their presence operating on Syrian soil despite uh, not having the Assad regime's permission. You began to see some gestures towards the possibility that maybe this doctrine isn't wrong in principle. It's just debatable in fact where it could apply. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying this has become the law of the land. There are loads of rigorous and vigorous critics of this doctrine. But that seems to be one of the lasting legacies of the past 20 years. Uh, are there other things that jump out to you as non-obvious, don't get talked about enough, lasting legacies of, of legal change, even if they're still unresolved? I mean, I, I will say this, although I suspect it's a matter of some controversy. I, I think there, that, that the there were some moments along the way of what to me were some pretty unfortunate religious discrimination and anti-Muslim conduct by government officials for which the remedies have been pretty sparse. <laughs> Are you thinking um, of the immigration type stuff? Like, so Turkmen and Iqbal and, you know, Abbasi, right? The immigration, the the post 9-11 roundup in and around New York. Um, you know, the Supreme Court's got a case that's here on this term that we've talked about, Fazaga, um, about, you know, at least alleged discrimination against a, a Muslim who refused to be an informant for the FBI. Um, you know, I, the, I mean, the travel ban case, I think, right? So, so I, I just... There are, you know, one who wants to find darker undercurrents in how the law has moved over the last 20 years. You know, Bobby, I, I wouldn't ascribe intent to the relevant courts, um, but I do think that, like, there are, there are respects in which the law is not as, how do I say, protective 
um, today as 20 years ago I might have thought it would be right that 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 we have we have we have embraced if not substantive accommodations at least procedural ones that I think have made it harder for folks and and Bobby this is this is a critique that cuts far beyond national security litigation but I think we've seen it especially in national security litigation just the demise of merits driven adjudication right and the unique impacts that's had in this space especially that makes sense um Another area we, you you adverted to this earlier um, in the surveillance realm, you know, FISA's changed quite a bit, and uh, I I think some some form of change was I think totally inevitable with the changing technologies of communication and the changing impact of the geographic directionality of of how one communication would get from point A to point B. Uh, Thanks to the way things ultimately unfolded for the United States, the the emergence of Section 702 as one way to deal with the peculiar fact that U.S. jurisdiction companies are often central as either the account provider for a communication technology like email or an app, or are themselves uh, the company is administering part of the backbone of the internet and so in a position to filter. Um, That sort of home field advantage reality as, as Charlie Savage and others have documented very well, it was it was always a thing. It was always sort of a, a complexity with a foreign intelligence surveillance activity for the United States. But man, obviously, the uh, the surge towards counterterrorism really yep. accelerated the speed with which the U.S. government wrestled with it. It seems to, you know, some people hate this, but it seems to have become quite stable, the solution we've currently got in place. Um, I don't foresee major change coming to that anytime soon. That That seems actually to be one where you've had far more merits related judicial engagement and lots of congressional activity where, where it's kind of like both the Democrats and Republicans are divided internally between more hawkish and less hawkish or more privacy oriented, less privacy oriented people. So it's gotten just, it's gotten ventilated more. And of course it makes sense that this area, unlike the others would, because this is the one area out of all the things I mentioned that the lens through which everyone's looking at it is the lens of the average U.S. citizen and whether right. their communications are picked up. Um, even though Americans sometimes can be uh, enmeshed in these other things, it's mostly a matter of what's affecting non-citizens. And so the other things don't get the same attention. And I think, I mean, maybe, you know, that's the other part of the story, right? Which is that we have just, you know, I think you could tell a story, Bobby, where there were moments along the way where some of the hot debates in our field were not strictly partisan, um, right? And where there actually were principal disagreements. There were there were both agreements across the aisle and there were lots of disagreements within yeah. the tribes, right? Um, and I just feel like as everything else around us has become polarized in the last few years, the same has happened to much of the discourse in our field where, yeah. Yeah. you know, the, it's not just that the nuance has disappeared. It's that like it's no longer possible to sort of forge broad consensus um, on what I would have thought were fairly fundamental points, right? If if the folks who you're trying to forge consensus with are on the other side of the of the coin. Yeah, I'm afraid that the this I feel naive in retrospect, but realizing that the surge of these issues into the national consciousness, which obviously creates, as I said earlier, the political pressures to draw to push this issue to the front of the policy queue, both for Congress and the White House, um, of course, it turns out that means that it'll get the treatment that any politically high leverage topic will get. And in yeah. today's politics, that means it's going to be you know, tribal team based 
you know, approaches in way too many circumstances, not some sort of relatively disinterested, hey, what makes sense here? What are the merits here? Which is not to say that people don't bring that lens to bear, but you can't deny that there isn't also a lot of politicking around it. Uh, and of course, that that's true for all issues that are real high leverage issues that lots of voters care about. So therefore, lots of elected officials care about it through the lens of re-election. Yep. But it doesn't make, our, doesn't make us happy. Um, what, what surprises you the most about where we are 20 years in? Um, so, uh, hmm. like, like, like what feature of our contemporary conversation would you have least anticipated, you know, not, maybe not 20 years ago tomorrow, but at least 20 years ago, you know, in oh, yeah. okay. I hundred percent easy. Number one answer. I cannot believe we have not held the trial for the nine 11 Defendants, KSM, Ramzi bin Al-Shib, and others. It it it's not okay, uh, and yet here we are. So that that stuns me. Um, yeah, that's going to be my answer. How about you? So you know, it's funny, Bobby. I mean, I think that it's that gets me back to. I'm on much the same page as you, but I, I want to take it a bit bigger, right? Which is you know part of why I decided to go to law school um, in the fall of 2000, as opposed to getting a PhD in history, was because I was attracted to the idea that unlike history books, um, law books had judgments in them, right? That, that you know, it's, I, there's a famous Dutch philosopher who says history is argument without end. Um, and law is actually, you know, end. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and I guess that, you know, it's not just the sort of lack of closure for the 9-11 um, victims in the 9-11 trial, which I think is a critically important. I mean, on the, on the 15th anniversary of 9-11, I wrote an op-ed about how the most you know embarrassing part of where we are is that we have no closure. Um, but just sort of the extent to which no one seems to, like, that hasn't been a policy priority, right? That That right. is not just the fact that we don't have closure in the 9-11 trial, we don't have closure in, you know, it's just like, we don't, you know, it... I guess in one sense, you know, there was some modicum of closure achieved when we, you know, when the, when the, the, the special forces killed Osama bin Laden in 2011. I think right? for a I lot think, of people, there was a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. But like, but I don't know. I, I feel like an event like 9-11 required more closure. Um, and, and it's fascinating. To, like there's, there's an interesting conversation to be had about why closure of itself, right. Hasn't been a sufficient good to be the basis for, you know, long-term policy, as opposed to just an argument that folks trot out as yet another, you know, yet another symptom of the disease, right? Like it seems like it's an independent reason to pursue particular policies in this space. So certainly I, of course, hadn't been thinking about the fact that one reason why it's, I, I think you just nailed it there by pointing out that by, by quote, getting bin Laden, who in, in many ways for many people whose engagement with these issues is, it's not like sort of steeped in it day after day the way it is for a lot of us. Um, that was the task. And yeah. so the idea that there are these other guys whose names are not remotely, those names loom really large to me, but I think for a lot of people, KSM and Ramzi bin Al-Shave and others, those aren't familiar names. And it's not obvious to them at all why it's, you know, why we would consider the job of uh, reaching verdict on the particular people that plotted the 9-11 attacks themselves remains unresolved because a lot of people feel like, what are you talking about? We got bin Laden. That was, that was the central thing. 
Um, so I, I get that. That's just sort of an, a result of the information asymmetry in a way. Um, well, there's a lot else that can be said. I think we all probably would have guessed that after 20 years, the AUMF wouldn't be unchanged. Right. I would never have thought that the 60-word statute Congress passes on September 14th um, and President Bush signs into law on September 18th um, would, with the exception of the FY 2012 NDAA, yeah. be completely un unaltered 20 years later. I mean, that's that's stunning. But then if you'd said to us back then, say, okay, let me give you some additional questions and facts. So if somebody had asked me, like, do you think that Al-Qaeda will be, you know, non-existent in effect? Uh, I don't think I would have thought that. I, you know, President Bush himself was talking about the length of how this was going to protract for a generation. I, I yep. found that persuasive. So I wouldn't have been too surprised. I would have thought some version of the current model would probably still be in place, but I would have guessed it to be highly episodic. And, and you know what? Maybe that actually is exactly where we're at now, even though we don't really have a lot of details about exactly when and how often force is being used. But it's not like I've heard recently of an airstrike other than the ones that accompanied the uh, the withdrawal, the final moments of withdrawal from Afghanistan. Right. Um, and then if you'd said, okay, here, here's one wrinkle. If, if you think that the AUMF itself surely will have been replaced or updated or, or repealed in the meantime, what if I told you that as the nature of, of the Al-Qaeda network evolves further, because I knew at the time a little bit about Al-Qaeda and I understood that it had evolved a lot in the time it had existed. If someone said, w one thing that will happen is the statute will be read in a way that encompasses any fracturing and splintering of the group into other groups. And it'll just be read to track that, to go with some center of gravity of the group. Then I would say, okay, well, then I guess I won't be surprised if maybe, after all, this is still in place. If if the group splinters, if the network splinters, as it does, and if the government is able to effectively assert the proposition that the AUMF just kind of follows with it, then the incentive for the government to press for change becomes very limited. And the politics for Congress to nonetheless insist on change, as we've seen, turns out not to be very conducive towards actually getting something across the finish line. Yep. And therefore, the 2001 AMF just doesn't change. <sighs> yeah. And if we need any reminders of that, have you been following the 9-11 trial proceedings this week? I only know that yet more proceedings are going on. And I saw a little bit of the coverage enough to see the kind of comments I'm now used to seeing, which suggested a lot of the same questions and a lot of the same issues are once again being wrestled with. And it's, I, I don't think there's a trial date at this point, right? No trial date. Um, seventh judge. Seventh judge, fourth day of the 42nd 9-11 pretrial hearing was today. Yeah, good times. So, you know, you look at what, how much political capital the Biden administration was willing to spend to pull out of Afghanistan I mean, that was a big expenditure of political yep. capital, it turned out. Yep. Um, you wonder, will he also, especially as it gets into the next year, like what else is he going to be willing to do if he starts to feel that basically his special role is to go ahead and do all these things that a person who's imagining they've got all these future elections and career and post-election plans, you know, I wonder if he's not going to start grasping the nettle on other issues such as doing something more dramatic than has been done so far vis-a-vis -vis Guantanamo. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but he certainly seems like he's beginning to align around the idea that he's just willing to spend his capital 
in ways that relate to national security that you wouldn't that let's just say a, a politician with who's imagining a lot more road ahead probably wouldn't do. Maybe we'll see something there. Yeah, I mean, I think the I mean the as we talked about in our last episode, I think some of the Afghanistan stuff was pressure that was brought to bear by existing agreements and other things. I guess the question is, what's going to put comparable pressure on President Biden vis-a-vis Guantanamo? You know, the only thing I can see, Bobby, is the courts, and that's not saying much. Well, I do think he's shown, you know, so a a lot of people have talked about, you know, on my watch, we're going to end this, we're going to end that. He seems a little more, more willing than the past two predecessors, so Trump and Obama, he seems a little more willing to pay a pretty big cost to put some teeth into that um, for better or worse. So it's not clear exactly how he can do it. I I have no doubt, though, that there's maybe more attention right now being paid to trying to produce a, a severe change to the Guantanamo State Affairs. I can imagine that the pressure is his desire to to be the one who did it, who closed it, who ended it. Um. And you know, if they if they decide to move that trial onshore, maybe into the civilian criminal justice system, maybe that would do it. But of course, the statutes don't allow that, do they? Nope. All right. Well, obviously, we could go on and on and on talking about post 9-11 legal developments. But I wonder if it might be easier on us and easier on our listeners if we close that file for now and, and turn to frivolity. Any yeah. final, oh, or not before frivolity because it's not frivolous. I'd like to actually hear a lot about what's going on. For example, your book contract. Uh, what? Yeah. What's that all about? Is it a uh, choose your own adventure? Uh, it's a Mad Lib, right? Um, <laughs> Ooh, why should you choose? It could be both those things. On, 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 on X day, right? The Supreme Court issued a insert emergency order here, stopping <laughs> insert blue state from doing insert social <laughs> policy opposed by Republicans. You know, you could definitely get some some viral uh, circulation of a of a politically charged Mad Lib. I like About, that idea. Yeah, well, um, one of my uh, um, one of my colleagues at CNN um, responded to the the tweet announcing the book deal with, um, you know, is the book going to be issued, you know, late at night without any, you know, warning? Is it going to be unsigned and with one paragraph of reasoning? Um, so, you know, so the book is, is titled The Shadow Docket. It's about um, all of the ways in which the Supreme Court is increasingly using these orders that we've talked about before to affect lots and lots and lots of people. Um, most recently, of course, the courts took a refusal to intervene last Wednesday in the Texas abortion case. Um, and the sort of the central conceit of the book um, is to try to convince or at least explain to a lay audience, to folks who are not, you know, appellate procedure nerds, um, why they should care, like why why these developments are actually important, um, why sometimes what the Supreme Court does procedurally is at least as important as what it does substantively, perhaps even more so. Um, and so, you know, the, the book is sort of a, it's a meta effort to sort of convince folks both that procedure matters and that procedure is being abused. Um, and anyway... That's yeah. a tall order to get the lay persons uh, interested, but you've certainly convinced me over time that this whole zone of Supreme Court process is terribly important, and that we do whether one thinks any particular case has been decided the right way or the wrong way. Yeah, we all should pay attention to that every bit as much as we pay attention to the regular docket. Well, and, um, and the Supreme Court's doing a lot to help me. Um. That is true. There, there's no question <laughs> that uh, your case has been made for you at just the right moments in time. 
But anyway, so the news that broke yesterday. So um, I have a deal to publish the book with Basic Books um, and the fantastic editor Emma Berry. Um, and so that's what that's what hit the hit the the the, inter, the interwebs yesterday was the 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 official announcement of the book deal. That's awesome. So when's your deadline? Uh, so uh, the manuscript deadline at the moment is probably next summer. Um, with a publication date of sort of June 2023. I think that's what we're shooting for. That's that's wild. Uh, well, congratulations. That's Thanks. very well deserved. Everybody, uh, there's, there's a window. I know these things work a little bit. You got to pre-order. That's the key. You want, if you're going <laughs> to buy it at all, go ahead and buy it pre-order. So well, I'm sure we'll... But before the pre-order comes the writing. Oh, sure. I'm sure somebody will take care of that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, people, people think sometimes, don't you ever hear this? Like, oh, don't you just, don't your students write your stuff for you? Don't you hire research assistants and they write your stuff for you? I love our students, but that is not how it is. I was going to say, I, I, I love our students to death. I've had some fantastic research assistants, um, several of whom will be prominently thanked in the acknowledgments for this book. But, you know, um, I you write my own words. Yeah. I, I, I write my own words. I speak my own words. Uh, well, um, this is, and so you'll get all the glory or all the blame, depending yeah, on which uh, right. outlet is reviewing you. Right. It'll be it'll be loads of fun to watch the reviews rolling in. I, I mean, conservative legal Twitter lately says that I just have a shtick and that I'm doing the shtick for Twitter love and no other reason. So, you know. I, I, I will... Agree that both you and I have shticks. <laughs> in fact, our whole the whole premise of this show is that this is our shtick. Um, but I will deny and I will win the argument against anyone who tries to claim you're a one trick pony. You you have multiple shticks, multiple tricks. <laughs> I have many tricks. <laughs> you are a multitude have, of ponies. I have large sleeves, so there are many tricks up there. Wait, that, um, I think that could be a show title. Steve is a multitude of ponies, or something. <laughs> Oh man! Um, uh, on on uh, other notes, you're not letting go of your litigation practice. Don't you have at least one case that stuff is happening in? Things have happened. Um, so the um, wow, this is what happens when we don't record for three weeks. So last Monday, September thirtieth, um, September August thirtieth, um, we filed a cert petition in Vagani on uh, the constitutionality of court martial jurisdiction over retired service members for post retirement offenses. So. That old chestnut is back in the Supreme Court. Um, it is amazing to me that that issue wasn't you know settled decades and decades ago. That's I agree. Big, it's, big, it's almost like now would be a good time for the Supreme Court to settle that issue. I I am with you on that. I we have no disagreement there. That's important. It cast, as I say to my one L's the other day, I was explaining about the shadow of the law. You know the <laughs> the theoretical prospect of being recalled to face court martial. It cast a shadow. It's a it thing. Does. Oh boy, does it! And indeed, I don't know if you saw Bobby, but there was, um, as things were going so badly in Afghanistan, there was this remarkable email that the Office of Naval Intelligence sent out to um, not all active, not all Navy personnel, but a lot of Navy personnel that reminded all Navy personnel, Bobby, including retirees, um, that they are bound by Article eighty-eight of the UCMJ, which prohibits the use of contemptuous words toward the president or the secretary of defense or a whole bunch of other officials. So, you know, and, and you just think the presidency does change hands. So even yeah. if you like the president at one point in time, there's going to be a president. You're not so excited about it at another point in time. Uh, everybody should be able to perceive the chilling effect on the potential important contributions to national dialogue that retired service members can and routinely do make. Indeed. There's whole, um, web, there's whole blogs that go out of business if people are really worried about uh, how seriously. this might be enforced. 
Um, and then really quickly, coming up on Tuesday, um, I am I am back in the Texas Supreme Court where I fared so well last time. Um, uh, arguing a case actually that's that's much closer to our bailiwick than the last one. So um, this is called Preston versus M1 Support Services. Bobby, it's a it's a, a, a wrongful death suit arising out of a military helicopter crash um, where the claim is that there was faulty um, a faulty uh, basically that the, the 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 contractor that was hired to do the maintenance inspection didn't do a good job and missed the thing that caused the crash. Um, and the lower courts dismissed the lawsuit because they said the, the suit was precluded by the political question doctrine because bringing in this kind of a tort suit against a military contractor might require courts to second guess sensitive military decision making. Oh, that is right up our alley. Yes. Um, so suffice it to say, I am arguing the opposite. Um, so that's that's next Tuesday morning, probably around 940 Central Time and in person in the Texas Supreme Court. Oh, that'll be exciting. Uh, well, good luck with all your litigation. I, I wish I could report on all the lawsuits I'm handling and all the rest, but I, I have no such. Um, the, the closest no, you, just, you, you just end up you just end up being you just end up being caught in administrative vortexes when you two get sued. Uh, you know, I like well, I get caught in administrative stuff quite apart from the litigation. I well, prefer to sure. have none of the litigation stuff and all of yes. just the strategic yes. planning stuff. That's the stuff I enjoy. Um, I think my biggest parallel project, and now we're truly getting frivolous. I've been trying to learn Slash's solo from Slither, oh. Velvet Revolver, and I'm going to play that with some friends on Sunday. Um, yeah, I'm going to butcher that. It's not going to be pretty, but it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, you want to talk briefly about Harlan? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, is it Peter Canellos? Is that the Canellos? I don't Canellos? know. I think I don't know. If it, I think it might be Canellos, but I'm Peter, not, I'm we not may sure. be mispronouncing your name. But we're gonna we're gonna really try to encourage people to buy your book. Um, that as you, as we talked about on the show previously, when you read it, Steve, this is about, uh, Harlan, the elder, uh, 19th century icon, especially known for his uh, legendary descents in key cases, including Lochner and Plessy. Um, it's really well-written. It's actually a dual biography of both John Harlan and, uh, I, I, no spoilers here. Uh, another figure in the family or maybe not in the family. That's the, one of the questions, right? Indeed. Uh, Robert Harlan, who was born enslaved, but um, John Harlan's father at least seems to have been, or may have been the father. And so Robert Harlan deserves not just a book of his own. I'm sure there probably is. There are multiple books. That guy deserves like a mini series. This guy lit, led the most fascinating in, in many ways, astonishingly impressive lives mm -hmm. and just uh, moving all over the Western hemisphere in ways and in times and with success and also dramatic failures and disappointments and reversals and comebacks, romances, businesses, which is just unbelievable. And so hearing their two stories intertwined makes it a great uh, mid 19th century into the Gilded Age kind of tale about the United States and puts a lot of perspective, really useful perspective, uh, into Harlan's uh, positions as he evolved over time from uh, uh, no friend to Black Americans to to a hero to Black Americans, right, and to then, one of the only prominent whites to attend Frederick Douglass's funeral. Right, no, definitely someone who understood the greatness of Frederick Douglass, uh, and then and then a really really useful uh, section at the back of the book that wrestles with some of the uh, 
rising and then falling and then restoring of his reputation as legal scholars at different points in recent years have reconsidered Harlan. I thought that was all just really well done. Um, and it paints just a great picture. Um, you know, it's, it makes me think that sometimes it'd be cool to teach one El Kama only through the biographies and, and the histories of the period that not just biographies of the justices either, but like a really well curated sort of selection of great books and primary materials rather than a case book. So, um, you know, maybe one of us will try that one day. That'd be a lot of fun. Hey, maybe we'll team teach one L comma in that model. Oh my gosh. With all our spare time. Team teaching one L comma would be like, we would love it and the students would hate it. Uh, They should be like, wait, wait. So what is the answer? Why do you guys keep disagreeing? I don't Which think we are okay. It, it, we're just describing Kamla. I don't know that we would disagree. Yeah, that's right. I think it's right. That's right. We would. They would see that we don't necessarily see it all the same way, but I think we'd actually teach it pretty similarly. I think we both put emphasis on equipping our students to be able to recognize and understand the relative strength and weaknesses of the different methods of interpretation as they're being used, and understanding how the sociopolitical context helps you understand both the cases of the past, as much as you obviously would know that that helps us understand the cases of today. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, maybe we could do it. Um, well, hey, so, talk to the associate dean, make that happen. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of work. Uh, hey, should we talk about uh, baseball and, and turn must people loose who were only here for the substantive stuff and don't want to hear the sports ball? Must we talk about baseball? We must, we must. Cause let's, let's check here. Um, yeah, looking at the standings, checking in here, the Mets, oh boy, five yeah. back. I don't no. think the Mets are going to make a late season run here. I think it's sorry, sorry Rexy, I don't think this one's got the distance. <laughs> you know, the, the DeGrom thing, it just it's crushing. It was going to be perhaps the greatest pitching season ever. And it just dies with the whimper. Now it turns out it, there probably was some ligament damage. I don't think it's coming back. We're, you know, we'll never know. It's so tantalizing. Uh, so the Mets are going to languish probably around 500. They'll be lucky to finish at 500. Now I just, yeah. need to root for the, now, I just need, now I just need to root for the Braves to hold off the Phillies so I don't have to buy our colleague Jordan Steichler lunch. <laughs> so that's the question. Is the rest of the East so bad that the Mets might actually limp into uh, first place in the East just because no. neither the Braves nor the Phillies look that good? No. Um, we have to. The make, we have to, to we have, They're not exactly racing away with it. We have to make up five games in twenty-one games, and we're actually six behind the Braves in the loss column. So it's like, in, it's like in Major League. Well, or you could say it's like in two thousand seven, when a particular team <laughs> was up by seven games with seventeen games to play. So I think uh, so in the East, uh, Braves or Phillies. Braves. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Probably the Braves. Uh, nobody wants it in the East. Uh, the Central. The Brewers running away with it, uh, looking really strong. I feel, I feel confident that the Brewers are going to win the NL Central. Yeah, they got that. It's not even <laughs> interesting to talk about the rest. Cincinnati having a nice, surprisingly nice year. Cardinals uh, could be better. I mean, the Reds. Uh, I mean, the Reds. You know, if the season. I mean, the Reds are a game back in the wild card coming into today. Yeah, so it's them and the Padres, right, uh, yeah. fighting for that last spot. And with so the, the Cardinals, rest with the, with the Cardinals lurking. Can the Giants hold off the Dodgers in the West? Probably. It's such a mystery to me how they. Kind of came together so well. well. I mean, what the right the two best records in baseball, I guess. Or I guess well, Tampa snuck in past the Dodgers, but like, yeah. All right, so um, in the American League, Tampa's got the East. Obviously, they're nine up in the Sox. Yeah. Um, the White Sox seem to have a 
even firmer grip on the central. Yes. Uh, only the West is even halfway interesting, and I do not see the Strohs slipping. No. I think they've got the West. I mean, Oakland's as far behind the Astros as the Mets are behind the Braves. Right. Yeah. Um, who are you rooting for for the AL wild card? Are, do you want to see a one-game Red Sox-Yankees? Oh, <laughs> I'm always up for a Red Sox-Yankees game, as should any red-blooded American. Um, I think that'd be awesome. I don't really have a strong feeling about where it goes from here. You got the the A's and the Mariners and Red Sox and Yankees and Blue Jays. I, the Blue Jays. The don't Blue Jays are interesting because I don't I'm not interested at all in the Blue Jays as a franchise, but they've got some exciting young players as I we love, talked I, about. As I said at the start of the season. I know I know you called that. You've called that and uh I said watch out for the Blue Jays. Of so course, that's they're, they're not in it, they're not in it yet. Have we talked by the way, have we talked about the Cleveland Guardians? Oh, don't get me started. How do you feel? Okay, this is going to lead to a football topic. How do you feel about the Cleveland Guardians? Is that is that it's a okay? waste? Like like so many other recent franchise rebrandings, it's just such a waste. It's such a missed opportunity. I mean, own the spiders. Spider spiders would have been so cool. So tell, talk to me about the spiders. Was um, what the spiders the- were? So the original professional baseball team in Cleveland was the spiders. Yeah, there you um, go. And it has a legacy and it has like, you know, I mean, one of the legacies is it has the worst single season winning percentage. The 1899 Cleveland Spiders <laughs> went 20 and 134. Um, so but, think about the karmic balancing that's awaiting them. If that's they what I'm saying. And you like spiders, you could do cool, like, you know. Oh, totally. It's distinctive. You can kind of, you can do a lot with spiders. That's what I'm saying. Like a, a, a ubiquitous creature that is all, as opposed to guardians because of the two little things on the bridge going yeah, over no. the Cuyahoga. No. I know they were going for the, Ian's like what ends in Ian that they can tap into. Sorry, you're not getting anything for that. And, no. and it's so anodyne. It's just so call Cleveland, just call them the Cleveland Ian's at that point. Now that would actually be funny. <laughs> it's like this bizarre. What is that? That didn't make sense. Um, yeah, I, I agree that for the most part, modern expansion team namings have tended to be uh, you know, anodyne and, yes. and, and just a real lost opportunity to do something that, that a kid could grow up loving and caring about. I will say as, as a rare counter example, like two cheers for the Seattle Kraken. Yeah, that's strong. That's strong. Hey, um, you know, Austin FC, as you know, with, with soccer, there, there, there's funny. a name Austin so, FC. Well, so let me finish. So <laughs> soccer or football is, is different because there is a tradition uh, in other countries of having the anodyne name, but then there's a cool name that goes with it. And Austin has the most anodyne possible name, Austin FC as its formal name, but the Verde, the Verde is great. It fits Austin very well. The colors are great. It, it's been taken up by the fans well. And uh, the uh, the tree icon is good. I like the, the, whole, eight, the, the, whole the eight o'clock. The eight o'clock at night games are great to get little kids excited about soccer. Yeah, it's this is a that was sarcasm. Well, it's a little hot to do it earlier, right? So that's MLS for you. That's one of the big problems with MLS is it it's a hot, hot, hot time of year. Yes. Um, All right, man. Well, what, switching to NFL real quick. Uh, Washington football team. I saw a list of names that apparently are like the finalists. I thought they all sucked. They, oh, they were all they were all terrible. So I mean. Oh, um, I, I think I actually I, I actually think the best thing they can do at this point is just keep Washington football team. Well, if they went by, if they just made it like we're WFT, or maybe they could flip that around and make it WTF and put that on the helmets. Like, because honestly, yeah. these these are just and like right after Cleveland goes with Guardians, they're gonna go with the Defenders. Come on, 
Armada like, Armada's awful. Those are like the joke team names that they put in like the movies, right? Like the last Boy Scout, right? The, <laughs> you know, the Knights. Uh Brigade, Commanders, Presidents. The Red Wolves is I mean, is that even a thing? I get it. Like you Red Wolves has the right flow of of uh syllables, but come on. Red Hogs is even worse. Do you have any bad. ideas other than Washington football team that, that would make sense? Um, the Washington lose to the Giants. <laughs> the Washington second, third place team. Um, do you think who's going to win the NFC East? I'd say Cowboys are going to win it based on what I saw last night. Nah. There you go. I'll take that as agreement. Um all right. Well, uh, any concluding thoughts? Yeah, the, the Cowboys will win the division if Dak stays healthy. If Dak's yeah, not healthy, it's a different yeah. story. That's right. Because um, there's there's nobody else. Is, is Tom Brady ever going to age? I mean, he's a Highlander. It seems there can be only one. Anyway, um, all right. Well, we will try to go fewer than uh, what twenty three days before our next episode. <laughs> but no promises. No promises. Um, he is at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, wherever you are, um, stay safe out there. Adios.